Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of, my, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And look into your, not look into your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't know if any of you saw the documentary that went out following the coronation last year, chronicling all the events leading up to that very important day. I didn't watch all of it, uh, but there was uh, one moment that particularly struck me where the royal photographer, Hugo Bernand, was preparing to take a picture of the king and the queen before the occasion. I think it was in March of last year. And he explained that he only had a few minutes of their diaries to take this picture. But he spent the whole day with his team in one of the rooms in Buckingham Palace, getting the lighting just right with all the spotlights, getting the camera position just right so he could capture them as best he could, making sure there were no pillars or plants coming out of their heads behind them in that sense so it looked just right. And you could really hear in him an urgency, a desire to capture as best he could his royal highness and the queen. Now working this week through this passage in Philippians chapter 2, for me I felt something of that kind of a burden. As we look at this passage together, how can we? How can we capture the majesty of this text, of all that God is putting before us about the Lord Jesus Christ? We are having in these few words a precious insight into the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And they're just a few lines, aren't they? But what riches... What riches? We could spend sermons on words or phrases. But as I thought further about it and read further on it, someone made a really important point. 
that whilst it is good and right and proper that as we sing hymns as we've sung, meditating on the greatness of the Lord Jesus and beholding him in his glory, this passage in particular is not given to us so much that it might be an ornament for us to admire as we see more of Jesus. It has a very particular and specific purpose. Because God is holding up this description of Christ and his person and his work as an example to us that we might be motivated to have the same mindset and attitude as the Lord Jesus. So it has a purpose and a, to have an effect upon us, to stir us, to follow Christ's example that we might have the kind of unity that Paul is calling us to in Philippians. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know as we've worked through these, this section in Philippians, it really begins in chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul is explaining there what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, a life that commends the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in what we say and in what we do and in what we think. And, and part of living that life that is worthy of the gospel, Paul says, in chapter 1 and verse 27, you have a Bible, turn with me to it. He says, um, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So this life that is in alignment, that commends the gospel, is worked out in everything, but particularly Paul wants us to think about what that means for how we relate to one another as Christians. And he says more about that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, because he begins to open up this call to unity that, as we saw last week, requires humility. And so we read there, In verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he says, verse 5, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he wants us to think in a certain way that we see in the example of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's doing here. And that really matters for the church in Philippi because we read in chapter 4, in verse 2, of two women, Eudea and Syndike, who are are in conflict. And Paul says to them, I appeal to you. Chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, uh, I plead with Judea and I plead with Syndicate to be of the same mind in the Lord. So there is a a conflict between these two ladies, and in some way that's having effects on the life of the church. It's a reminder, isn't it, that whilst our relationships with one another, our personal relationships, those being strengthened or those being harmed has an impact upon the whole fellowship because we're connected. And we thought last week of how hard it is to not think 
of just our own interests, but the interests of others, of how hard it is to, to not have a, an inward-focused, selfish attitude, but one that's outward, thinking about others. And in all the challenge of that, I don't want us to miss something, which is, friends, that there is hope. That there is hope that God can work in us if we know and love the Lord Jesus, that our hearts would be different and changed, because that's what he does by his spirit. Someone, we were talking last week, do you remember about the spring in the removable tow bar and trying to get that back and how hard it was to turn, and that was a bit like our hearts. And then someone this week said, don't forget this illustration by Spurgeon. And Spurgeon talked about a wristwatch, where he said the wristwatch is like the Christian that wasn't working before we came to faith. But then when God saves us, he gives us a completely new inside. He changes and transforms us such that we have a new mechanism, a new spring, a new heart. And that new heart means that we can obey what God commands. So any of us who is honest about our hearts would say, we are at times those of selfish ambition and vain conceit. We are at times those who value ourselves above others. We are so often those who have just our eyes looking at our own interests and we neglect those of others. But God's Spirit lives in you, Christian. And you can be different, Christian. And that's a great thing. So as we come to these verses... Now we see what is Paul doing here, having put that call to unity that needs humility before us. Then he says, think of the Lord Jesus. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, think of all that Christ has done for you. Spoke there of the encouragement of being united with Christ, of the comfort that comes from his love, of the common sharing of the Spirit and the tenderness and compassion of Christ and Friends, if there's anything that will melt our cold, selfish hearts, is it not the warmth of verse 1? We've known all that from the Lord Jesus, but he goes further because in verse 5 to 11 he says, Think and act like Jesus in everything. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So if we're going to do that, to think and act like Jesus in everything, we need to know what Jesus did. And that's what he holds out for us in verses 6 through to 11. We're going to have two points this morning. We'll look at verses 6 to 8 and consider what Jesus did. And then we'll look at verses 9 to 11 and consider what God the Father did for Jesus. And they will both help us, I pray, um, as we seek to grow in that humility and unity which God calls us to. So let's think, first of all, that we are to, if we're to think like Christ, we are to look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus did. And here, our first point in this uh, section is to think of verse 6 and see Jesus' great position. Look down at verse 6 and we see who, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So we must begin with the position of the Lord Jesus. And how does he begin? Well, the very highest place. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is 
Jesus, you might say that is the most pressing question before any human being. We speak much, don't we, of the big questions of our worlds, but compared to the questions of climate change or peace in conflict zones or anything else, that question, who is Jesus, is more pressing than any other because eternity rests upon your answer to that question. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're delighted you're with us. And if you're wondering, there's so much I want to ask and there's so much I want to find out about, where should you start? Start with this. Who is Jesus? And we see here that the Lord Jesus Christ is in very nature God. Those are Paul's words. He is fully God, not lacking in any way in any of the attributes and characteristics of deity. But not only that, is he in very nature God, he is equal with God the Father, because Paul says he did not consider equality with God, which means, therefore, he is equal with God. And he says, therefore, he is not just one who appeared divine, as some would say, He is fully divine, having all the attributes of divinity fully equal to the Father and the Spirit as the eternal Trinity. So we do not believe, because we believe God's word, we do not believe what JWs would teach, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, who might say that Jesus had the appearance of being divine because he was just the Son of God, but not truly divine. This verse says, no, he says he is in very nature God and he is equal to God. And so Jesus Christ begins from the very highest place. That's where we start. But then let's follow it down and keep looking and see his great humiliation. Beginning in the middle of verse 6. We've seen his great position, then we come to see his great humiliation. Because we read there that Jesus did not use... His great position, equality with God and status. He didn't call upon the the benefits that were his by right from that status. Because what did he do? He didn't use them to his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing. Other versions have he humbled himself. Now, what does that mean? Well, it does not mean that he lost anything of his divine nature in coming into this world. It does not mean in making himself nothing that he lost anything of that, but rather we might say, and perhaps better translate it, he humbled himself. He humbled himself, taking upon himself the role of a servant, middle of verse 7, by taking the very nature of a servant. We might even say taking the role of a slave to the will of God the Father. So we're being taught here that the Lord Jesus, though he is fully and he was and is and ever will be fully God in nature and position, he in his coming into this world, willingly submitted to the plan of the Father to save. He came to bring about that great plan of salvation of which Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, where he says, 
In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So God the Father sets forth his plan of salvation, which requires that God the Son will come into the world and be born into the world. We'll think about that in a minute. To rescue a people from their sin, that's you if you're a Christian, that they might be restored into a relationship with the triune God and that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, might enable the work of the Son, turn us to the Father and give us the privilege of life, knowing God. So this is amazing triune work of salvation that we're seeing a glimpse of here in these verses. Now see, friends, that Christ's submission, his servant role to the will of the Father, was a temporary submission. So it's not that he was eternally submitting to the Father, but rather for the period of his life and his incarnation and his death and all that he would do, he was in that sense submitting to God the Father. And in doing so, he was a servant. That's what Paul says. He took the nature of a servant. Now, who was he serving? Well, he was serving the plan of the Father in the fullest sense. Often we speak of Christ as the servant king who has come to serve us, and there's truth in that. But in these verses here, what Paul is thinking of is not the way in which he served us, but the way in which he served the Father in bringing about that astonishing plan of salvation. Now that tells us something about what it looks like to serve and lead like Jesus, doesn't it? We often speak rightly of servant leadership. But that servant leadership in its truest sense is ultimately serving God and God's purposes. And that means we don't always um, do what everyone would want of us in that sense because God the Father is our ultimate one that we're serving. So that's his beginning of this humiliation. And then, because he is willingly submitting as a servant to the plan of God... There are three big steps that he takes, and Paul charts them for us here in these verses. Step one is in verse 7b and 8, where we read, And being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. So the first step of Christ's obedience to the plan of the Father is he becomes a man becomes a human being. He takes upon himself a full human nature such that in his incarnation, that is his conception in the womb of, the, of, of Mary, he takes a full human nature such that the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ is united to a human nature in his incarnation. And he is a real human being. He has a body and ever will have a body because of that. He has a heart that beats and pumps blood like yours and mine. He has DNA. He's a full human being. 
And that divine nature is joined to that human nature in becoming a man, excepting, of course, he doesn't have a sinful nature from Adam. Because he doesn't inherit the sin of Adam, because he's perfect. So that's the first step. And what does that mean? Well, let's think of this, friends, to become a human, to become a man. It means that he knows the frailty that you and I know as humans. He knows the finitude, the the limitedness that comes from being human. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He got hungry. He knew what it was to experience temptations around him. Not in his heart, because he had no sinful nature, but in, around him in the world. And the devil tried that, didn't he? He knew what it was to experience human weakness, to experience human sickness, to experience human suffering and pain. And that's just the first step. The divine Son of God becomes a man. But here's step two, and it's in the end of verse 8. Because we read that having become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. So he obeyed to the point of death. And you might say that is the ultimate act of obedience, isn't it? The Father has sent him into the world to do a work, and that work requires that he will give his life for his people, because our sin demands judgment eternally. And the Son of God comes as a man and then dies on the cross in obedience to the plan of the Father. And is an ultimate act of obedience, isn't it? You know, sometimes we read horrible stories in the news of, of cult leaders who have many followers. And what do they ask them to do as the ultimate act of obedience? It's to die, isn't it? Now, that's a sinful thing because that's not for us to ask of other human beings. But God the Father to accomplish this great plan of salvation because there is no other way to rescue you and I from our sins, sends the Lord Jesus Christ to die for us. It is the ultimate act of obedience in giving up his life for our salvation. The ultimate humiliation is for the eternal and infinite God, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. But it's not just that, friends. That's step one, he becomes a man. That steps two, he's obedient to death. But then there's a third, and you see it there at the end of verse eight. And becoming obedient to death, and then Paul emphasizes, even death on a cross. So he dies, and he dies on the cross. Now, why is that important? Well, it is because of the shame of the cross. The cross was a means of execution reserved for those whose actions were so evil and displayed such wickedness that the state, the Roman authorities, took away your life. And it wasn't a quick, painless death. It was long, extended, excruciating agony. I won't tell you the details because there are young children present, but if you want to think more of what Jesus went through in dying on the cross, go and read something about crucifixion and you'll get an insight. 
And it's true, isn't it? Sometimes, and nothing wrong with it, but people might wear a cross around their necks as jewellery. But it's a gold cross. It's a smooth cross. It's nice, really, isn't it? That wasn't Jesus' cross. Jesus' cross was rough wood. Jesus' cross had cheap iron nails driven through his hands and his feet. Jesus' cross had a crown of thorns on his head. You might say it's more like a guillotine, though it was longer than that. It's like wearing a guillotine around your neck. Horrible. Such was the death of the Lord Jesus. And why did he die, friends? He did not die to identify with those who had died that way. He did not die as a, as a picture, ultimately, of, of perhaps sacrifice and giving your life, and he might motivate others to that ultimately. Why did he die in that fullest sense? He died to save you from eternity in hell. And if you're trusting in Jesus, that's what he's done for you today. No one started so high. No one ended so low. Such was the work of our Savior. And he did that, friends. Let's come back to the bigger picture here. He did that because he had a mindset. He had a way of thinking. So here's the key thing for us to grasp. What Paul is doing in this passage and what God wants us to feel this morning as we see it is not to look on and think we are to replicate or repeat the sacrifice of Jesus because that's done once for sins. But rather that we might have that same spirit of obedience to the will of God that Christ had. That's what he wants us to feel. And that's why it makes so much sense that Paul would turn to focus our eyes upon Jesus here, having just given that extended call to unity and humility. So if we ask the question, what is God's will particularly being impressed upon our hearts in this passage, what is it? It is, friends, that we might be like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. It is that we may not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility we might value others above ourselves. It is that we may not look to our own interests, but the interests of others. That's what God wants us to do in response, because we are to be as obedient as Jesus was. We are to have his mindset. And so as we live in a day where we have thousands of voices around us saying, we deserve better, think about number one. What do we do? We think about what Christ did and we think, well, Jesus could have made the same case, couldn't he? He could have said, I don't want to follow the will of God in bringing about this work of salvation. 
I deserve better. And rightly speaking, he's the only one who could say that, is he not? Being fully God. And yet he didn't. Um, Back in our home, um, I keep my tools in the garage. And in the garage, there is one toolbox that pretty much has every tool I might need for most jobs around the house. So if I say to the boys, can you go and get me this tool? They don't usually have to ask where it is because it's in that toolbox. There's one toolbox that's kind of got everything in it. It's got so much in it, you can't lift it off a shelf or get it into the house because it's too full. But as we think about the devil's attack upon us as Christians, the devil has a toolbox, doesn't he? With different tools to try and attack you and I as believers. And friends, this tool of making us think that we deserve better and the world should be focused on us, that tool is one of the most effective ones the devil is using today. We have to reject a self-centered, self-focused worldview. We have to do that. Because if we do that, that will transform the way that conflicts work out that we're going to have between one another because we're all sinners. That will build the kind of connections within the church family that will foster the kind of humility in each of us that will give us great unity. So we're like those Roman soldiers forming that tortoise such that as a devil comes to attack the people of God, he can't. But the problem when we have conflicts that shatter our unity is we say things like, I am not doing anything before they apologize. Or we say, well, it's for them to sort this out, not for me. Is that the mind of Christ, friends? When God says, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men, is that the mind of Christ? Or we might say, well, to achieve unity, that would require too much from me. It's asking me to go beyond what's reasonable. Did Jesus Christ think of what was reasonable? If he had, where would you be and where would I be in my salvation? We would be still in our sins, without hope and without God in the world. But praise God that Jesus Christ did all of this for us. Let us have that same mindset of following God's will in seeking and striving for unity. So we've said, look at the example of Christ. And now we're going to move more quickly through verses 9 to 11. And we're going to consider, look at what the Father did for Christ. So we've seen what Jesus did. And we've seen how his mindset of submission to the will of God should be our mindset. And here we come and we see... Look at what the Father did for Christ, verses 9 to 11. Now, the second part of this passage is what God the Father did following Jesus' astonishing act of obedience and that was his work of salvation. And here, Paul opens up for us what was Christ's reward from the Father after he completed that work. Now, it does not mean that he becomes something more than he ever was. 
Because remember, verse 6, he's in very nature God and he's equal to God. It does not mean that he achieves a higher status than the Father or the Spirit. But I think the way that we need to see these verses in verses 9 to 11 is that there is a new display of the glory of Christ because of his amazing work of salvation. If we want to think about more of this, if you jump with me in your Bibles to John 17, Jesus touches on this as he prays that he might be glorified. Just listen to John 17, uh, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked forward towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you that you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. They know you, the true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then look at verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. That's verses 6 to 8. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory you had before the world began. That's Philippians 2, 2, verses 9 to 11. So what do we see here? What does the Father do for Jesus? Well, let's look quickly, and we need to move quickly, but it's wonderful to see. Verse 9, he is given the supreme position. Verse 9, therefore God, following his work of salvation, exalted him to the highest place, So after his his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, what does he receive? He receives the highest place. He is exalted to the highest place. He, He was and he is enthroned in heaven now. That is Jesus Christ. Supreme position. But then also, look at verse 9. Supreme title. He is given the name above every name. Now, your name and my name is tied to my identity, isn't it? Someone says your name, it it links to you, it's it's precious to you, and rightly so. That's why remembering someone's name matters, because it shows that you value them and you care for them. It's tied to their identity. So, to give Christ a name above every name, what does it mean? It means that he has the greatest position above all names in his glory, In that display of his glory, he has a supreme title. But not only that, he has supreme honor. Verse 10, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. (laughs) That's everywhere, isn't it? (laughs) There's nowhere else that Paul could speak of. Heaven, earth, under the earth. There's no rock under which you could hide that did not cover you in what Paul just said. And what he's saying is that all people, all created beings, including the angels that God has made, if it has a knee, it will bend. If it has a back, it will be horizontal. Before the Lord Jesus Christ, he has supreme honor. And then verse 11, there is a supreme confession. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, what does that mean? It means king. It's the highest title you can have. It means you're the sovereign. You rule. And notice, it is not just every tongue 
Oh, sorry, the NIV is every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> Other versions have confess, and that's what's there in the Greek in the original. And this word confess doesn't just mean, acknowledge has that sense as well. It doesn't just mean say it. It doesn't just mean say the words. It means say them, you know? Mean them. Confess them. Declare them. So, friends, we've got a supreme position, a supreme title, a supreme honor, a supreme confession. And that, this, is the present status and position of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, John Piper says that Jesus is the apex of the glory of God. What does that mean? He is the highest expression that we can see of of the glory of the triune God. Not that he is higher than the Father or the Son, but that God chooses in the Son to most fully display his glory to us through that work of salvation. And Jesus' status has unending implications for your life and my life. Because he has supreme position and title and honor and confession, that means something today and every day. It means I will worship him as Lord in everything and I will not worship anything or anything anyone else as Lord in heart in speech, and in life. It means I will stop bowing down to false lords, wherever they may be. If they're in the crowd, I will not follow the fads and fears of my friends when they conflict with the authority of Jesus Christ. I'll serve him and him alone. In the world... I will not bow down to pop stars memorizing their lyrics rather than God's word. I will not bow down to sporting heroes obsessing over their stats in fantasy football more than I am burdened for the teaching of scripture and God's word. I will not follow lifestyle gurus hanging on their every word and instruction for life when God's word is sufficient that I might be equipped for every good work. And when I find false lords in my heart, in my own ambitions and my own desires, I will turn from them so that I might be humble and grow in unity and stop serving myself. That's where this connects with unity as God's people. Friends, there is no one greater and there is no name higher and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means he gets all of me all of the time. And your life and my life, if you know and love Jesus, if you've trusted him, and I hope you have, all of your life, every moment of your existence, is governed by this great truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. C.T. Studd, one of my heroes, put it in a way that 
I certainly can't beat. When he said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Amen. Great God in heaven, we praise you and we bless you for our great saviour, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you sent him into this world, Father God, that he might bring about that eternal plan of salvation. Lord, we are so humble because we remember there was nothing in us that made us worthy of that salvation. But it was all of your love, all of your grace, all of your mercy, all of your kindness. We praise you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you came willingly, submitting for that time to the will of the Father. Thank you that you went through humiliation in your incarnation, in your obedience and death, and in the death of the cross, that we might know forgiveness, that we might pray even now, that we might worship you as your people, and that we might have the promise of eternal life. And Holy Spirit, we praise you, we praise you and we bless you You enabled the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity in that plan of salvation. And that you have taken that glorious gospel. You have taken our hearts that are hearts of stone. You have given us life because you have given us the gifts of faith and repentance. That we might believe in Jesus and trust him and you have sealed that salvation to our hearts that now and forever we can say that we belong to our God and we know that sweet fellowship through the spirit of God at home in our in in our hearts so Lord God would you help us to respond in all the ways that you have been placing upon our hearts as we have heard your word And we ask that we do that for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.